And thanks to Cry Malt, this is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, editor of Australian Brews News. And once again, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague and regular co-host, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. Happy New Year. And to you too. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. And Happy New Year to you all. Thanks for sticking with us. Does this mean now, this is uh, because the first uh, of the 2015 uh, Radio Brews News podcast went out uh, this week, didn't it? It went out uh, New Year's Eve. Well, it was actually New Year's Eve. I managed to get it out as promised uh, in on, on New Year's Eve. So, oh, the, okay. so we haven't been uh, as, as regular as we uh, had hoped yet this year. We just finished off last year with one. I was hoping that, you know, with this one going up straight away, um, almost as we record it, that that would count as regular. Well, that was only seven days ago, so... Yeah, know, but it was that, seven days was a year ago, Matt. You know that. Well, mate, uh, just to survey some dirty laundry, I did try and get you uh, Monday morning, uh, so we could... You know, we were recording this Wednesday, but Monday morning you were unavailable, so uh, I, yes. I'm, 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 I'm no, doing no, my... No, well, I cop that. <laughs> let's, let's move on. But how was your, how was your Christmas? Um, how, how was your Christmas New Year? And enjoy any good beers over the uh, over the festive break? Uh, I did. I broke with my um, my, my regular sort of tradition of, um, of drinking fresh and drinking local, and I did have uh, the almost the complete range of the of the Weinstefan beers over Christmas, and only because you know just linking in with the old Good King Wenceslas uh, granting the first commercial brewing license to Weinstefan back in around ten forty. Um, and so I always have those at, at Christmas and I, and I must admit, I did buy them from a, uh, a reputable and trusted supplier and they were, uh, not quite brewery fresh. They were brewery fresh plus six weeks on a boat, but had been, um, well looked after. And that was about my only concession to, as I say, to my, my staunch belief that I, I, I if I really want to drink a good Hefeweizen, I will go for, uh, a Four Pines, for example, or a Burley Brewing Hef, yep. in, in preference to, to the other. When I'm overseas, if that ever happens again, if I'm ever lucky enough to get overseas, then I will drink my body weight in um, in the local product there. Yeah, and I think there's something that we talked about. I remember saying, gee, it must have been four or five years ago now, my New Year's resolution was to, you know, where all things being equal, drink local, um, to, you know, uh, uh, supporting the local industry firstly, Um but also, you know, I think that fresh beer is better. Um, so uh, I tend to drink mainly the, the local craft beers. That said, over Christmas, um, it can be a little bit hard to get uh, a very good um, Belgian triple uh, in Brisbane. I know that uh, Little Brewing Company pump out some really nice Belgian beers and uh, Costa down at La Serene and Ben uh, Krause is doing a really very nice Saison. And so there are some very nice versions, but I, I do like a, a good Belgian pale. Um, particularly at Christmas and a, a Belgian triple, um, uh, I find goes very nicely with the turkey. So I did uh, seek some of those out um, over the uh, over the break, um, and also had the uh, Weinstefana, um, had the Corbinian. Um, I didn't go the complete range, but I did have the uh, Corbinian, which I enjoyed very much. Oh, there we go. So uh, yeah, and mate, being the silly season, there hasn't been too much news. Although just this week. I'm oh, been... just Matt. I'm just just on my other on my other screen over here. I've, I've just got the the weather forecast up, and it, and it seems that there's a shitstorm brewing. <laughs> yes. Did yes. you like what I did there? Oh, I, and speaking of uh, liking what you did there, I might just quickly uh, thank our sponsors. And um, Prof, do you remember? You, you and I are a little bit older than probably a lot of our listeners, but in, in back in the '70s, there was a uh, wine that, from memory, was called Maison, and the jingle went something like, "From the vine comes the grape, from the grape comes the Maison." 
Yes. Do you, do you remember that? Yep. So, yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, these days, I guess the tune that we sing is from the barley comes the malt, from the malt comes the beer, and from cry malt comes the malt to make that beer. beer. Yeah. It makes the best beer. So, uh, it won't fit on Bruce, a billboard or a T-shirt, but but thank you very much to David Cryer and Cry and Malt. Because they do support for, uh, us. They, they love what we do. They they love what we do and they, they love, love what we do uh, regularly, but... brewers do. Exactly. Exactly. Well, they, they love what we do so much, they're just happy when we do it. So, uh, no, we do we do thank David Cry and Cry and Malt and thank them for covering the costs of uh, getting this uh, podcast out of uh, bandwidth and all of those sorts of things. So uh, we do appreciate David Cryer. And if you like what we do, um, like what David does and uh, get onto the Cry and Malt bandwagon. But, uh, Prof, yes, back to the weather forecast there. It was a bit of a shitstorm. Um, and it, it's been something that we've talked about over the last couple of um, you know, in, in frequent podcasts. And I know that we talk about it a lot, how we're starting to see the backlash um, occurring uh, against craft beer. Um, yeah, and, you the, know, the perception of, of craft beer and the association with hipsterism, uh, with it's a fad, with, you know, it's, it's an expensive way to drink VB or, and everything in between. Or just, yeah, you, you, you're drinking something just to say that you're drinking the latest and the coolest. And that all, a lot of those concepts came together um, in an article that an American beer writer, Andy Crouch, uh, wrote. Um, it's a very, it's quite a long article, but it's a very, very well written, very balanced, just, just the facts, um, where Jim Cook, who's the uh, owner and founder of Sam Adams, uh, sometimes credited with really giving craft beer in the States a big shove. Um, he's a very clever businessman. Um, but Sam Adams has become you know, a, a juggernaut, a brewing juggernaut. And consequently, there's been a bit of a backlash. And a lot of the um, trendier bars in Boston, for example, uh, won't stock his beers because they're seen as being a little bit uninspiring, a little bit uninteresting. Um, but the, the point that this article made was that a lot of the bar owners who were refusing to stock it were actually criticizing the quality of the beer. And I think that there's one thing you really can't criticize about the quality uh, about the beer, and that's the quality. Yeah. Um, it's probably not the most adventurous. Um, and it certainly not hasn't traditionally been West Coast IPAs. Um, but, uh, you know, they've suffered a little bit for creating beer that people want to drink. They were also, Matt, one of the first, I think, in the States to really... Um, establish a large contract brewing sort of setup, were they not? Well, my understanding and coming from, it was confirmed by this article that, yeah, they, they didn't actually found start a brewery until well after um, the uh, brand had really established itself. And now they, they brew uh, in a number of different facilities and they do have a very small brewery in Boston that's kind of like their skunk works where they uh, it, it's a bit of a, a consumer-facing brewery where they do a lot of uh, small little test pilots. R&D and stuff, yeah. But, but it, it, it's interesting, and it, it shows where marketing is very important because it sounds like it's got a little bit in common with um, James Squire where Jim Cook um, doesn't have anything to do with Sam Adams. Um, he's named it after Sam Adams, um, and it's a bit of a uh, complex link um, between Sam Adams and brewing. Apparently, he was a maltster. Jim Cook uh, initially said he was a brewer. Um, and one and, of the just, fathers, I think. Not, not the one, one of the founding fathers. That's he uh, was, uh, Sam Adams, not, not Jim Cook. Yes, yes. We're not suggesting he's that old. Yeah, but in brewing, he wasn't the first brewer, but it's a very historical figure. And the article makes the point that by anchoring your brand with a historical figure, it gives a new brand, um, you know, 
gravitas and a little bit of weight and a little bit of a, a backstory. But, you know, it, it's just interesting to see. We're really starting to see that uh, in Australia at the moment. And we've been talking about it for a while where as, you know, a certain type um, of drinker comes to be associated with the public face. And, I mean, God, if if everything that someone with a beard picked up suddenly became labelled as a hipster product, um, no one would be eating or drinking anything, I guess. But craft beer has certainly been one of those things that have been closely identified with a, with, with something that's highly fashionable. And, uh, yeah, there, there was always a potential... You know, whether you're talking about flares and disco music, uh, Chardonnay we saw in the, the 80s, um, there was a big blowback against Chardonnay once it came to be identified with Chardonnay sippers. And I guess we're seeing craft beer going a little bit that way ourselves. What happened to your craft beer? What, <laughs> yeah, you changed. 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 <laughs> look, at, look, look at the crowd you're hanging out with, Matt. You used to just stand in the background and just kind of just be there for me all the time. But, you know, now you're standing up the front, you know, you changed. No. But it will... But, but has it, or you know, has our no, attitude to, to it no, changed? No. Look, the reality is, mate, when when we first started, uh, you and I first started sort of chatting over a beer about beer and, and what this phenomenon called, you know, microbrewery, boutique brewery, uh, artisan brewery, craft brewery, what, what this whole sort of gig was called um, or could be termed, there were probably only a couple of dozen craft brewers, non-mainstream commercial brewers around the country. Now where and it was bloody hard to find them anywhere, and it was, yeah. So you, I guess, those who knew, perhaps had a better appreciation for it. Maybe now because we're moving away from differentiating craft beer, perhaps we're moving away from you know, look, if it's a well-made beer, just enjoy it for what it is. Make those other, um, you know, value judgments and decisions in your buying process around that, but but just enjoy the beer for what it is and keep it a little bit simpler. Um, yeah, maybe it's. Not that we've lost our way a bit, but I think maybe. And look, I'm not quite sure how to put it, but but what occurred to me the other day is that uh, at some time in the middle of this year, Mountain Goat is going to turn 18, legal drinking age, which means that there will be people who were born at the same time as the first high tail ale, who will be getting their drinking license. Do they then look at Mountain Goat and say, no, I've seen that around. It's, it's kind of everywhere now. That's, that's what my dad drinks. To then go out and seek something new. Or do they say, right, here we go. This is, this is what it's, these are the, these are the ones to whom I owe a, a debt of gratitude. And, and that's exactly, uh, you know, your, your perceptions. It's a funny thing about human beings is that your, your perceptions are framed by what you know. And uh, you, you, can, you can't bring to mind what you don't know. Um, and, and what went before. Um, and I guess the one thing that comes out of all of this is that this too shall pass. We are going to see, um, you know, if you think that what we're experiencing now is the, the future of beer, you're just going to be wrong. Yeah. Do you think maybe too that um, craft beer's blessing is also its curse in that um, it's very much it, the popularity and the growth of craft beer has been very much um, assisted by social media? And it's that same social media that gives people a platform to, I guess, uh, some people might might feel that they have the right to shit can a product because they don't like it or because it's now owned by a a company that that they don't wish to, you know, donate funds to. And so the the very platform that has helped grow this sort of groundswell of support for, for, uh, you know, this other than mainstream beer 
is also perhaps yeah um, hindering its no natural I, development. Or, or, or is it just is it just as, as as many sports people seem to be using at the moment? It's just, it is what it <laughs> yeah, is. Yeah, no. Look, I, I um I think that unless you're deeply involved in craft beer, the craft beer social media is like you know you're not even noticing craft beer on social media. You're just sort of seeing it in the streets and every bar you walk into and every restaurant and um and I think that that's where the you know the the, the association of a type. And I mean, let, let's face it, you can't walk into if if you go in if if you're a non you know hardcore craft beer drinker you'll go to any any pub and you'll just sort of drink what's on um great example i was up at the sunshine coast on the weekend the local surf club obviously uh heavily supported by forex um and or line um and they had the complete range of line beers the only beer that you could uh, the only beer that you would call vaguely crafty was james guy's golden R. um but the place was packed um and you know th- th- there weren't too many beards to be seen um, because it was, you know, it was a broad yep. cross section. But if you walk into one of the um, specialty beer bars where you know they're, they're constantly changing their taps, then I'm about the only bloke that doesn't have a beard these days. Um, and so I, I think just for the average punter who doesn't even engage with craft beer on social media, that's their perception. You know, craft beer is associated with the, you know, the the, the young fashionable um, element. Um, and hipster has come to become a little bit like yuppies did in the eighties. You know, uh, it's a highly visible term, but it's become a term of derision for people who are, you know, blindly fashion-led. Yeah. And uh, craft beer has come to be associated with that, which is a shame because Pete Brown, um, the English beer writer Pete Brown, um, weighed in with uh, a piece overnight where he was talking about, um, you know, when when you discover craft beer, you go on your little craft beer journey and you start eschewing um, some of the beers that you know maybe were the first ones you ever discovered, or you, you don't get you, you forget about the classics and whether it's you know Duval or um, Chimay, those sorts of beers, uh, and then suddenly you go back to them and you think, wow, these are fantastic. And he you know, he's just talking about that reverse fashion where everything is cyclical, and at the moment, highly hopped beers are very popular in the craft beer world, mm-hmm. but. As I said, this too shall pass, and we will, you know, start discovering beers with balance. Uh, and you know, every element, whether it's food, um, you know, I, I remember back in the uh, you know, 1990s, early 1990s, everything came topped with roast pine nuts, um, and then they disappeared. Suddenly, I've been out two or three times uh, to restaurants over Christmas. Pine nuts are starting to make a bit of a... <laughs> exactly, and it's this is one of those things that stand out. You know, over the last two or three years, everything has had, um, you know, beetroot and goat's cheese. Yeah. Yep. Suddenly, uh, you know that that's going to become a little bit overdone. Um, American barbecue. Um, you know, you were probably the first bloke that I remember talking about American barbecue a couple of years ago when you did that barbecue uh, excursion to uh, Carolina. Came back. Suddenly, barbecue was everywhere. You, you watch. I mean, there's going to be a bit no, of a don't blowback. Don't say that like I deserve credit for it. I think it was. Oh no 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 no. But it, it, before that, it had <laughs> just not even featured on my radar. These days, you can't you know walk down a street without you know stumbling past four um, or five you know US yeah, um, yeah. Uh, joints. And, and, um, and I think probably in in microcosm, it's very similar to craft beer in that a lot of these places are, uh, are doing inverted commas uh, you know barbecue, and and they'll get they'll get found out once people, I guess, appreciate how it should taste and and, and that there are better ways of doing it, or it brings their standard up. And I think it's the same with, with, with craft beer. 
most of the brewers out there, they're, they're not going to read a tweet and go, geez, we need to just reassess our whole portfolio here, guys, because, you know, apparently we're, we're um, you know, we're, we're being left behind or, you know, people's tastes are changing. I, I, but that, that, that's fashion. You know, if people yeah. are wearing flares, every trouser maker makes flares, um, you know, because if you don't, you go you, out you of business. Gotta, and... Yeah, you've got to make what sells. Three minutes later, everyone will be wearing stovepipes, and you, you retool and start making stovepipes, and, and and that's the way it is. I guess you know my and it's something that I've been, you know, standing off about for you know a, a while now. Is that my fear is that, um, you know, Coopers is a great example. Coopers is a business that has survived, you know, so many fashion cycles. Um, oh, plus and, two world wars, a depression, and a couple of style takeovers. Oh yeah, but I, I'm just even talking about you know uh, there's, there's an article on Bruce News that I um wrote about Tim Cooper uh, a couple of years back um, for the Virgin Inflight magazine. Um, and, you know, just in the time since the 70s, he talks about, you know, weathering, you know, three periods where the business nearly went broke and he mm-hmm. was sent off. Um, you know, his father told him to find another career back in the 70s because they didn't think that the brewery was going to um, last. last. The next generation, yeah. And suddenly the 80s came and, uh, you know, the, the 80s, um, the, the university studi- students of the 80s, which we would now probably label as hipsters, discovered uh, Coopers because it was something that was a little bit, you know, retro and ironic um, and picked it up and suddenly it spread and its um, volumes, you know, went up massively. Um, and then suddenly we had the recession of the late 80s, early 90s and sales fell and it was only their homebrew product that kept them going. But it was hmm. that... You know, um, the, the the fashion, and if, if we lost Coopers then, we would have lost you know, a national brewing institution based purely on fashion. So, yeah, it's just one of those things. I think we all need to be mindful of it. We all get caught up in fashions. Our tastes change. But, you know, how, how do we do that and keep the, uh, the, the classics so they're always there, um, you know, like macaroni cheese, you know, a bit of comfort beer? Yeah. I can't see so, it right. being made out of mac, mac and cheese, but... No, I'm no, sure, but you, you know what I mean. I'm, you sure know, there's there's a, a, I'm sure there's a craft brewery somewhere in the States that's working on it. <laughs> you, you know comfort food, you know. I, I, know yeah. I know exactly what you mean. So so in, so, so in winding up this particular segment of, uh, of this episode, craft beer is, is, uh, is pretty safe. Craft beer is, well, craft beer is pretty safe, but just don't think that um, we aren't on a shifting landscape. It's, it's, it's yeah. the, the dunes are always moving. Exactly. And that's what keeps it exciting. But, uh, mate, now we're, we're about to play the first part of a two-part interview I recorded uh, a couple of months ago um, with Tim Avadia from uh, CUB. Um, you know, we've had a we've had our the artist formerly known as CUB? <laughs> the, the artist formerly known yeah. as CUB. Um, the Yeah, I mean, we, we've had our moments with uh, Fosters over the last couple of years. You know, it's a fairly tempestuous relationship. And I think the one thing that for the, um, you know, some of the family spats we've had with them uh, – that may have been lost is that, you know, Matilda Bay has always made great, well, has, has over the last few years been making some great beers. Um, and it's never been about the beer. It's been about some of the marketing. And so Tim Avadia is the uh, brand manager for the Crown brand and also their consumer insights manager. So he spends a lot of time looking at what consumers want and, you know, uh, trying to pair that up and uh, put that in, you know, onto the label of the bottle. Um, so I had a, a very good chat with him um, about Crown, Crown Golden Ale, which has been out for about six months now. Um, and then it was a long chat. So uh, the, the, the second episode that we'll uh, put out in a week or so um, looks a little bit at uh, this year's or the current release of 
uh, Crown uh, Ambassador Reserve. So, yeah, no, it was a really, really good chat. Um, Prof, have you had a chance to try the Golden Ale? I have. I have had it a couple of times. And your thoughts? It was interesting. Um, it was a, a, an unspectacular but um, uh, faultless example of a very easy drinking, I don't know, uh, it, it's an ale that wants to be a lager. Um, I don't think it's particularly far removed from from its namesake. Uh, and the other thing is uh, the, a couple of different hotels that I was in, I had to ask for a glass and that immediately made me think, you know what, if you just neck, neck this out of the bottle, it's probably not a million mile away from 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 Crown Lager in terms of its 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 values, if you like, you know, it's it's peaks and troughs in terms of flavour and all that sort of stuff, mouthfeel. Um, so, I, yeah, it's. I guess it gives somebody who wants to try something different an alternative. Certainly at price point, um, and you know, it'll be it'll be seen around. Yeah, and actually, you, you raise a few interesting points there. I mean, the glassware is a big thing, and I guess and one thing that Crown has worked very hard when you speak to the, uh, the the guys at Fosters, they have worked very hard on ensuring the premium experience, um, which the, the bottle has always been. But as tastes change, um, you know, Crown Lager from a tap, they uh, invested heavily in the tap design, um, and they got particular taps to deliver the beer a very certain way into the glass. Um, to make the pour perfect and to, to make it look. And, and I really gave them props for that because they were really thinking about um, the consumer experience. If they provide the glassware, I, I guess it's very hard for them to uh, make uh, people use it. But, you know, I, I've been into some of the good craft beer bar, you know, one in particular in Brisbane that holds itself out as being, you know, Brisbane's craft beer capital. And you know you you're drinking an eight or nine percent beer, and you have to ask for a glass there as well. So it, it, it's fairly hard to criticise CUB too much uh, for that. Its venues need to lift their game, and uh, CUB is trying to encourage that. Um, the the one thing, and I talk about this with uh, Tim in the interview, is I did think that it was quite interesting that it was the first time that they could have put this out as, for example, a Matilda Bay beer. Um, uh, you know, Matilda Bay has been playing around with some very lighter, you know, light flavoured craft styles. They're uh, a little bit lager heavy at the moment in their bottled product. Um, and they could have put this out as one of those. And it's the first time we've seen a beer with craft beer stylings um, coming out in a mainstream package, um, which uh, I, I actually thought was rather prescient and sensing that craft beer is becoming the premium uh, is actually moving into the premium sphere as opposed to uh, becoming a distinct thing. Yeah, yeah, very possibly. So anyway, we'll we'll, we'll listen to what uh, Tim says and uh, I'll catch up with you after the interview. See you at the other end. Roll out the barrel, we'll have a barrel of fun. Roll out the barrel, we've got the blues on the run. And yes, now I'm joined by Tim Mavadia, who is the general manager of the Crown brand and also CUB's uh, marketing or consumer insights manager. Tim, welcome to Radio Brews News. Thanks for having us. 
Well, thank you for having me down uh, to, to have a bit of a chat. We've, uh, yeah, normally we wanted to catch up and talk a little bit about the Crown Golden Ale, um, which was released a couple of months ago. Yeah. But uh, we had the little conversation we've had off air, and you've you've got some of the history of the Crown brand um, out for me to see. And uh, so maybe we can pick up where we left off uh, two years ago, uh, talking about the history of Crown Lager. Yeah, it certainly is a, an interesting history, so it would be good to sort of cover some of that off and hopefully shed a little bit more light on, you know, the, the origins of this brand and, and um, you know, set the, the record straight on a couple of things, I guess, to the best of our ability, given, you know, you gave us a bit of a, a prompt a couple of years ago in terms of, you know, some of the things that uh, were out there around the, the history of our brand and, and uh, how true they were. And I think, you know, we, we, uh, we listened and it hasn't been easy getting to the bottom of, you know, exactly when we were first brewed and, and some of the, the myths and stories that are around that. But I think we've got a, you know, we've got a, as I sort of said to you off air, I think we're pretty clear now on, on what we don't know and uh, we're pretty clear on what we do know. So, yeah, it'd be good to have a chat about it. Wonderful. Well, I guess we should just start uh, by telling us a little bit about uh, Tim Avadia and uh, where you come from. Yeah, so I, uh, it's kind of interesting. It's a bit daunting being uh, with you today. Obviously, a uh, well-known beer expert, and I certainly don't profess to be that, although I am passionate about the, the beer industry and, in particular, you know, uh, beer brands, which I think have a special place in sort of consumers' hearts. I think um, my background is that I've spent sort of 20 years in marketing, um, 10 years of that on actually on the, the dark side, working for advertising agencies, and then the other, the last sort of 10 years of my career being uh, client side and being lucky enough to see the world from a different place within the, the CUB um, uh, team. So, yeah, so I get the sort of two sides. I get to see what happens, you know, from a client side and, and behind, the, behind the doors of the brewery. And I've also seen in terms of the way we make communication for our consumers from the advertising agency side of the world. And uh, I, I did formally apologise to you off air uh, for all of the things I've said about marketers lumping lumping all marketers in uh, you know the, 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 the boogeyman uh, camp. But uh, I mean, it, it can't be denied that it doesn't matter how good the beer in the bottle is if people can't be persuaded to pick it up for the first time. Um, there's no point making it because if, if the consumer can't find it, and uh, marketing is a very very important part of uh, the, the the whole brewing process. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think um, I think you, you can't separate you can't separate the the image of the brand from the liquid in the bottle. They're actually intrinsically linked. And you know, I think it, it, it's interesting, Matt. I think as a, a marketing industry, you know, um, I don't think we've covered ourselves in glory. You know in general in the marketing industry because I think you know, over the last couple of decades and it's certainly the, the, the trend probably driven by consumers has started to change because I think what we've done is that you know we always talk about brands of being a, a bundle of benefits and those benefits range from the physical product whether it be the, the liquid in our beer and the ingredients that make that liquid to the image that's associated you know with that that product you know that's driven by you know the bottle shape the label the the advertising that goes with it the the sort of you know the, the personalities we get to represent those beers, and it's those it's those the bundles of those things, and I think you know to some extent that you know we should there's no shame in that at all. I mean our beers are more than just liquids in people's lives. We're kind of lucky that we work in an industry and with products that mean something to consumers. It's part of the culture and part of the Australian fabric that beer plays has a special role for us, and you know beers 
are as much about the liquid as they are about the image that people define themselves by. And, 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 but I think as a, as a marketing profession, what we've done is that we've lost that balance over the last couple of decades and we've focused too much on trying to portray the right image and not having the right balance between that image and the, the product credibility and the authenticity of the product. You know, back when I think when I started in the advertising industry, I was always told that the advertising game was pretty simple. Our job was to take a product truth and to essentially bring that to life in an engaging and interesting way by being good at telling stories that engage with people. But it always started with what's the product truth that you're then going to go and build an interesting story around. And I think where we've lost our way as a marketing profession is we, we forgot that that's the basis. And we've got too obsessed with how we're going to create the right image without trying to understand what the, essentially where does that start from? You know, what's the product truth that underpins that image that people buy into? And so I guess from my perspective, that's certainly something that I'm very passionate about. And I, and I think from a CUB perspective, if you look at our marketing over the last couple of years, we've started to make that transition of anchoring our communications back into the actual product stories in a way that still creates an image that's appealing and aspirational for our drinkers because they definitely do want that, but there has to be a truth that underpins that. And certainly we've been working through our portfolio and making sure that our actual stories are grounded in, in truth because we have a belief that that's what makes the most powerful marketing is the, the right bundle of the product truth and the image that is appealing around those two things. There's so much of so many threads in, in what you just said that tie up beautifully in, in Crown. I think that's why it makes it such an interesting case study for, yeah. for beer and brewing and marketing together. So maybe we can uh, step back and uh, yeah. look at, uh, um, I don't say this pejoratively, but look at the truth behind the, 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 the Crown brand. Yeah. Um, and two years ago, I wrote a series of articles about the um, oft told story that. Crown was first brewed in 1919 for diplomats and, and, and royalty and then relaunched in 1954. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd found some old ads that went back to 1914 that seemed to predate the official start date of uh, um, Foster's Crown Lager as it was referred to then. Um, you guys have gone back and done uh, a little bit of, um, or quite a lot of um, research into the brand. Um, can you tell us what you found uh, about the origins of the Crown Lager? Yeah, so so definitely. I mean, I, I think um, you know, firstly, you know, you know, with you know all sincerity, it, it's and I said this to you off air. I mean, to some extent, we're pretty grateful for the fact that you challenged us around those things in the first place. Because you know, having gone back through the the history books now and done as much research as we can possibly do at, at this at this stage. It's kind of interesting. So we've discovered a whole lot of incredibly interesting stories about this brand that we'd like to probably use going forward, you know, that are absolutely true and we've got records to support them. And then we've discovered, you know, a lot of ambiguity, certainly around the, the, the first brewing and the origins of where it's come from. Um, and that, you know, and there's, there's things that we just simply don't have answers to. So uh, to the best of our knowledge, and, and probably very consistently with what you reported a couple of years ago, you know, I don't think that we were first brewed in 1919. It would, you know, from, we've seen the thing, same things you have, Matt. It, it looks like there's, there's uh, records of ads around the 1914 to 1916 period that suggest that that's probably when Crown, as we know it today, was born. You know, it, it's probably come from uh, essentially being, you know, a, a, 
a, uh, another brand that's sort of been rebadged into Crown around that period of time. And we know that that was the period of time around the First World War. So, and, and as you know, I know you know your history, but you know, up until that date, sort of German sort of lagers dominated the, the market, so to speak. And then obviously during the war, they became less popular for obvious reasons. And, and hence, you saw the trend towards you know, Australian, Australian lagers and Australian beers growing in popularity coming out of the, the, the back of that, of that period. So we think that that's when we were first brewed, around that 1914 to 1916 period. But you know, we're not going to pin a date to it because we just simply don't have the facts to support it. And you know, we've, uh, in all the communication that we've now got out in the marketplace, we've taken off any references to 1919. Um, I'm sure the people that put that on the pack in the first place had good reasons to do it. I, I can't tell you because mm. I literally wasn't around. I've only been working on this brand for about the last six months. Um, and, and I know that they wouldn't have in any way uh, meant to mislead uh, anyone ar- uh, around those. But you know, as, it, as it stands, you, you won't see any communication from us that says 1919 anymore. We think, interestingly enough, it's probably earlier. To some extent, it's a better story for us than, uh, than the 1919 one. I guess the only, the only disappointing part about that is if you you picked us up a couple of years earlier, maybe. We might have been able to be better planned to celebrate our centenary, uh, centenary this, year. this year. So, um, But, yeah, so that's, I guess, the, f- the first part of that, that, that story. And then the second one which we talked about was, you know, the, the Queen's visit in 1954. Um, oh, I, I think there was some... You know, we had a, a, a video on our website at the time that was sort of suggesting that the Queen had come to our brewery to to witness, you know, the uh, Crown Lager coming off the production line. Again, it, it appears that that wasn't, that wasn't the case. What is true is that we did, we did release a limited edition sort of Crown bottle to commemorate her visit to Australia, and our sales peaked during that period of time. So that is absolutely the truth, and I think you've seen the bottle that, that commemorates her visit out there, which is kind of fascinating in its... Um, in its own right, but you know, I, I don't think there's uh, any truth in the fact that she came to our factories and was sitting there in the production line, lot watching our our bottles of uh, beer coming off, and and uh, and yeah. So I think that that's probably the the other thing that we're clear on now. And I guess the third piece, which is kind of interesting, is there was this sort of myth talked about, and I know that we talked about it openly for some time around the fact that we were originally brewed for visiting Australian ambassadors going overseas. Now, it appears that actually there is some truth to that story. I don't think we were originally brewed for those ambassadors, but we have got sales records that you've seen that we definitely have shipped um, uh, Crown Lager over to ambassadors uh, as early as sort of 1930, 1940 um, in international posts. So there is that, that we've got records to, to say that that definitely was the case, but I don't think there's uh, any truth in the suggestion that that was essentially our origins of being brewed for those international diplomats, although we certainly were sent over to um, uh, diplomats who, uh, in, around the world. So, yeah, I think to our best of knowledge, that's where we sit today. Well, I guess it always has been seen as something of a, a premium brand because I do remember seeing uh, pre-war um, sales docket or... Um, newspaper advertisements and it was a more expensive uh, beer that was being sold so I I guess that would fit with it being then sent um, overseas to diplomats or being provided because you 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 don't give your standard everyday uh, beer to important people. Well as we sort of saw in the records over there what's clear in the you know although the exact time when we were first brewed is a little bit murky what we do have records around is a belief that you know the best products that came out of our breweries at the time 
essentially received the crown mark on them. So I think this thread of us always being a a um, better quality or a more premium beer in the Australian marketplace has credibility over time mm. in terms of the way it's always been marketed. And I think you know back then you know who knows we, we weren't there, but you know that the, there probably was a genuine belief that it was Australia's finest beer, and that theme has carried um, through all our marketing consistently over you know since since that time. And, and you know what's interesting about that is that I can understand. You can look at that and say, well, are you really Australia's finest beer? How do you make that claim? I guess as, um, as a brand team and as a corporation, our view on that is you know, future-looking. We have a responsibility to those you know, the hundreds and thousands of Australian consumers who love this brand to live up to that claim going, going forward. Now, I'm never going to say that, you know, as we know, whether the beer that you, the style of beer you might like might be very different to the style of I. I might like, and you might claim this is Australia's finest beer, and I might claim this is Australia's finest oh, I, beer. I wouldn't make that claim about <laughs> but, any beer because uh, it's so subjective. It is, but I, it I is. guess uh, uh, it, it, that comes back to the the truth that we we're talking about, yeah. and you know whether what's being said about the brand matches what's in the bottle in the consumer's eyes. That's exactly right, and I think then to that point, then you know often we sort of refer to that as marketing puffery, if you like, right? Um, and you know, the, and people have been doing that for generations and generations within marketing. I'm very comfortable with that as long as what's in the bottle can live up you know, to the claim and has some authenticity and credibility. And if you go over the last two years, the work that you know, our, our brewing team um, led by Jadeep has been doing and you know, the, the work we've been doing to improving the quality of ingredients that we've put into that brand, and we've turned it into a bit of a, a, a purpose of ours is to say as we go forward, our mission is to continually improve the quality of ingredients that we put into this and our brewing processes and thinking to make sure for generations to come that Crown can credibly hold this claim of being a premium in Australian beer and, you know, I can look you in the eyes and say, hey, you know what, I know we get, I know it's a bit of marketing puffery around the claim of Australia's finest, yeah. but you know what, you know what's in our beers, we use the best quality ingredients, here are the brewing processes that we use and I'm pretty comfortable we've got enough truth in there to be able to make that claim without feeling like it's, it's just really, you know, marketing bullshit without any substance behind it. And I think that the whole uh, brewing team needs to be uh, congratulated for that because whether it's VB, um, which has done very well since it was uh, sort of re... Uh, it went back to its former strength um, yeah. and a lot of effort was made behind the scenes in, in the brew house to improve the quality and Crown Lager is the same. It had fairly dramatic uh, changes in terms of going back to being an all malt and a kettle hopped uh, yeah. product. But how hard, as somebody who's... Uh, job is consumer insights. Uh, has the crown brand been tarnished by the, the the long period where maybe it wasn't as special as the the, the marketing was saying it was? Uh, I think yeah, I don't think the brand has been tarnished, but I think we I don't think we've done the brand justice and necessarily our consumers justice. And as a result of that, I don't think. You know, there is, there is as many people drinking Crown Lager and Crown Golden Ale today as I think we would like them to be. And I think that, you know, again, you know, what I believe has taken place is that, you know, consumers' expectations of what defines premium for them has changed, right? So if I go back to the 1980s, if you think about when Crown was at its, its peak of its powers, what, what defined a premium back in the 1980s? You know, it was actually probably more about the style and less about the substance, okay? 
And then we went through a, a, a number of sort of catalytic changes in society brought around by things like stock market crashes, GFC, September 11, which actually at a bigger global perspective reset consumers' values around the world, right? So they actually, you know, in times of turbulence and change, what we see with consumers is they go back to looking for security from things like traditional values um, and they become you know, a lot more guarded around the way they spend their money and they, they, they become more considered in everything that they do. And as part of that, I think the way they judge premiumness has changed. So now they're looking for not just style, but style and substance and good value. Rep- and if they're going to pay top dollars for things, they want to know that they're getting good value for money. So if consumers in any industry, not just beer, start defining premium products by how good are the ingredients that go into it, what's the provenance of it, what's the production story that goes, that goes with it. Um, you know, all those things, how scarce is it? Can I get it everywhere? Or, is there, is, or am I going to be one of 3,000 people that can buy it? Scarcity is one of the dimensions that, that defines premiumness. Um, all those things bundled up now are slightly different. And I guess our, you know, you mentioned the fact you have to be careful about saying things have changed. Look, I, I have no issue with that because if we don't evolve with consumers, we get left behind like the dinosaurs. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think to some extent... The mistake we've made on a brand like Crown that, you know, as I said, hundreds of thousands of Australian consumers love, um, I think, is we just haven't evolved the brand. Do you know, like, it'd be like Madonna basically still singing Like a Virgin in the same get-up she used in the 1980s, right? She doesn't do that today, right? She's evolved. She's kept the core and essence of who she is, but she's evolved as, a, as an artist. As a, as a beer brand, as a brewery and as a beer trademark, Crown also has to evolve, you know, which I think is you know, a segue into Crown Golden Ale. That's part of our evolution as, uh, of a brand. What we do want to do is stay true to what we're about. So you, know, you think about Crown Golden Ale, it's still, built, it's still an all-malt beer. It's still got the DNA of what a Crown brand is about. It's, you know, and, but we've essentially evolved it to match potentially changing consumer preferences over time and, and because what, what what I think our responsibility is is that to make sure that you know when my kids grow up they still want to drink a brand a beer with the brand crown on it you know it's part of Australia's history and culture and so you know I think sometimes we reflect forget that responsibility as marketers that we're sort of guardians of these of these beers over oh, and you know our job is to make sure we lead them in a better state than when we got them in the first place so you know we're, we're sort of really quite excited about what the future holds for crown because we have such a rich past to pull on right so it's kind of ironic as i said you know you rightly sort of held us to account for potentially not you know not having our our facts right but by going back and digging more into it, I think we've discovered, you know, that we have such a rich, rich history to talk about going forward, and it's really given us even more passion to make sure that this thing is a bigger brand in ten or fifteen years' time than it is today. And we're not sitting here saying, you know, Tim, what happened to the Crown brand? It used to be, you know, loved by everyone, and now it's that basically doesn't exist, right? So. That's where our real passion is. Well, I guess, I mean, following on that, one of the things that uh, when I'm not writing, uh, I'm out doing beer tastings. I do a lot of consumer um, beer tastings. And one of the uh, brands I'm really often asked about is Crown Lager. And so two or three uh, perceptions that I've been left with that um, just, you know, 
the common man, um, yeah. for want of a better word. Um, Crown Lager is just fosters in a nicer bottle. Yeah. Um, secondly, that it's uh, it's the beer of choice for uh, car salesmen who've had a win at the races. Um, uh, it, it, it is another common perception, and uh, you know, it, it is to be a, what the states minister, the Holden Commodore. Um, are, are some of the things that uh, I, I pick up, and <coughs> the the way that I hear it being referred to is very different from a very similar brand, um, and arguably a you know sort of a less premium brand these days. Um, yeah. Something like uh, James Bogues, which is a uh, you know. Line has been, has maintained a mystique about the Bogues brand through its advertising. Um, do you think you know are, are <coughs> they um, perceptions about the Crown brand that you guys pick up internally, or is that something that uh, is a little bit uncharitable? No, no, I think that's the, let, let's be so so let's be realistic. It's not like that, that we haven't heard those things mm-hmm. before. However, I guess I'd say um, a couple of things. First is that my actual dad is a car salesman. So, <laughs> no, he, he's actually not a car salesman, man. I'm only joking. But the um, the um, car salesman, the marketing, you're harsh on the car salesman and marketers. <laughs> The, um, that, that's not me. That's, <laughs> again, this is something that's reported to me. So, so the um, so I, I guess a couple of things there. So uh, we've we've heard all those things before, and I'll step through a, a couple of them to, to to talk about in detail. What one of the interesting things that I think happens is that, especially within the marketing industry and the brewing industry, is we let the view, the views of few rep um, we or, or we think that the views. Of a small minority represent the views of the the much bigger mainstream Australian majority. So what I know through uh, having sat in hundreds of focus groups and seen a lot of data about different brands and the different levels of respect and adoration that these brands have is that um, although that there are definitely people out there that have those views that you're talking about and a lot of people out there that have those views that you're talking about, there's many, many more people out there that actually love drinking Crown Lager and have a lot of respect for that brand. Um, the last time I looked at our, our tracking results and we track things like my most favourite brand or most liked brand, Crown Lager is consistently in the top three brands in Australia on those scores. Okay, and, um, and what sort of demographic um, is that across all demographics? Across all demographics, and this is what I talk about in terms of the major populace versus minority groups, right? So if I just look at beer drinkers 18 to 55 years mm-hmm. and I go in and ask them how they feel about a range of different beer brands, Crown Lager is always in the top three. And, and I'm probably being conservative there. It's consistently in the top one and two brands in terms of you know um, brands perceived as premium and brands loved by uh, Australians. So there's, a, there's a, uh, a, a massive group of people out there that still have an enormous respect for the, the Crown brand. And, and why? Because they drink it. Regularly, and and if they did, if they if they believe those things that you're talked about, Matt, I don't think they, I don't think we'd be selling as many cases of Crown Lager as we, you know, we still sell, right? How are Crown sales going? Beer has been in decline um, yeah. it, itself. Has Crown sales been declining faster or slower than the general beer market? I haven't looked at them in sort of uh, in that context before, okay. but they've been de- they've been declining, yes. right? Um, and they've been declining because, as I sort of say, what people what, what people um, 
view as premium has changed over time, right? And there's, you know, there's, there's no point hiding around the fact that, you know, craft beer brands have impacted uh, crown sales. The, the discounting of international premium brands, you know, like, you know, Heineken and Corona and those type of brands have also impacted a crown because the price relativities have completely changed. You know, it wasn't so long ago in this country that you paid sixty or seventy dollars for a case of Corona, and now you can pick one up from for forty five dollars, right? So when that price differential changes so dramatically over a period of time, of course it's going to impact um, us. But you know that's kind of interesting in its own right because we now have a new competitive set, right? So you know our competitive set is premium beers, which include craft beers, they include internationally imported beers. We're, we're now truly on the world stage comparing against those, those brands with international provenance and on you know, a stage competing against you know, craft, craft brewers. And, and that, so that's, that's an even more challenging dynamic, which I guess is why we're very clear our path forward is that there's no point putting our head in the sand and ignoring what that's going on. We just have to make sure we've got an unbelievably good quality product with great ingredients in it and we market it in a compelling way that's relevant to people and changes over time. But isn't that a little bit like saying that uh, when the market's surveyed, they say Holden Statesman, to, to go back to my earlier, is, is a, um, you know, a, a very well-known uh, prestige car brand and yet that same person then goes out and buys a Lexus? Yeah, I guess the only, the only difference here is these same people are going out and still buying Crown. That's my point. Is there's still a, a, a large number of people that are buying Crown, just like there's a heart, a large number of people that are still buying Holden, right? I think. But that, I guess that's where I was asking. You know, is is it is declining? Crown, yeah. Is yeah. Crown well, the beer market's declining, so the fact that Crown was declining wouldn't be of itself an issue because if it's declining at the same rate as the market, then it's holding its position. But if it's declining faster than the market, oh. then I think I think the mere fact that it's declining is an issue for us, if that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's declining at, a, you know, it's been declining at a rate that we're not comfortable with and we're very open and transparent about that. Um, and it's been declining over a decade because we haven't been able to match the same level of a total value proposition of the craft beers or the international premium beers, which is why a couple of years ago we essentially took a good, long, hard look at ourselves and, you know, uh, re-engineered, if you like, and, and recrafted the... The, the beer and the products that went into it so that we can sit here to say and, you know, and say, you know, look, there's nothing worse as a marketer when you have to go and try and market a product that you actually don't believe in or you know there's not a lot of great truth or substance behind it, right? You might think that that's what we love doing as marketers, no, no, right? <laughs> Sorry, no, but, but actually it's not because it always, no matter how good a job you do at it, it always comes across as being reasonably hollow and eventually... You know, what happens is that consumers, especially today when they've got access to so much information, they're not stupid, right? They pick up on this stuff. And, and I guess that's the point I'm making, that for a long time, I think, uh, and I mean, it's certainly my, my view, but divorced from my view, um, just the stuff that I pick up, not in formal focus groups, but yeah. uh, when they come up that, you know, these are hard super dry drinkers. Um, and they're the sort of people that are giving me the, the, the feedback about Crown's brand. Yeah. Um, and for a long time, Crown's marketing didn't live up to what all of these other little, uh, you know, the, that it's just fosters in a, in a better bottle yeah. and that it's not as good as, you know, it's, it's not yeah. Australia's finest. Yeah. Um, it, you know, 
Is, is there a risk that when you do focus groups that you're a little bit selective in, in, in what you hear or what you take away or just there, there is a, a bias to, towards things? Oh, look, oh, uh, yeah, all our cards on the table. I honestly think we're harder on ourselves than you can be on us, if that makes sense, or our consumers can be on us. So, you know, you don't make the sort of changes we've made to our products, to our marketing, if you're not listening to what people are saying. Because a lot of them are quite expensive. You know, we've invested a lot of money in, in getting this product to a level that we feel really comfortable, that it competes with, you know, uh, craft beers and international premium beers as a, a premium offering. I think if we can just get back to that myth around the, the Foster's one, because I think, you know, I think that's important just to, to say, and again, you know, I, I haven't been here in the past and, and I don't profess to be a, a beer expert. We can ask uh, our head brewer, Jadeep, when he joins us to talk more in detail. But, you know, just be, that's to be absolutely very clear. When we made these changes around our product, I mean, our ingredients are now segregated off Internally, with and, and, and I'm happy. Yeah. And, and I guess yeah. I should say at this stage that yeah. you know I, I see you know perhaps 18 months ago when Crown was reformulated, yeah. uh, and a, a lot of these changes have made. You know, we, we can almost call that a watershed in in what absolutely in, yeah. in what's in the bottle. Yeah. But unfortunately, you can't quarantine brand perception quite as neatly as you can. Uh, you know the the quality of the beer. And, yeah, no, that's and dramatic changes were made, but. There is always going to be a lag time between, and, and, and I guess I'm referring to perceptions that may have been created in the marketplace. Yeah. You know, going back, you know, three, four, five, six years yeah. um, that I'd sort of in heard, in, heard increasingly. And, and they exist, right? So yeah. I think it talks to the challenge we've got in front of us because you, you don't change people's perceptions overnight, and nor do words do it, right? You have to take actions because, as I said, consumers are different today. They're, mm. they're smarter and they're more informed. So there's no point going and telling people that we've changed. We've got to show them that we've changed by the investment we make in our product and the way we market and, and what we do out there. And, you know, that, that's... What I would say, though, is that what's kind of interesting is that I really do passionately and genuinely believe that Australians are proud. Um, they want a beer that they can be proud of, right? Um, and there is a real latent sort of equity we have in the Crown trademark. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, not wanting to tell the world our, 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 our secrets, so to speak, but the results we've got to date on um, Golden Ale talk to that is that, you know, we, we, we see people in focus groups, you know, almost it's almost like we've given them... Um, the re- they wanted a reason to believe again in Crown mm-hmm. and for all the things that you talked about and the myths that exist, they probably lost faith in it. But as soon as we put a product that they felt like was relevant to them again, clearly had you know the right sort of quality of ingredients in them, had an image that felt more modern and contemporary for it, you just sat there and you saw the smiles on people's faces and their reactions and... It's great that when that happens in a focus group, but then you see that actually take place and translate into sales in the store, right? And the amount of positive feedback that we've got, and, and what's really interesting is that, you know, again, being pretty transparent, we, you know, we, we, one of our concerns is is that you know, we didn't want to go and launch Golden Ale and then see it really you know, cannibalise our existing Crown Lager business. You know, we don't see it as, you know, this, this is not replacing Crown Lager. It's, a, it's another member of the family, if you like, right? So, um, and what's great, one of the, the most encouraging things that I heard is that, 
you know, some of, you know, my, uh, you know, my dad's friends and, and you ring them up and you say, yeah, and so these are sort of extended family members. So if anything, they're going to be more positive than they're not, right? But sometimes they're actually more brutally honest. So, you know, I, I brought some, I brought some, um, sent some beer out to them and it's interesting. They turned around and they said, you know, what, that, that golden ale you've got, you know, it's really, it's kind of nice. But you know what, I prefer Crown Lager, right? Which to me was music to my ears, right? Because these were, I sent them to Crown Lager people and, and I guess, you know, a slightly older generation love Crown Lager and they're very happy with it the way it is, right? And they, they don't want it to change. But then a new generation of 25 to 35 year old guys that are buying this stuff are actually going, we love it. You know, it, it's, it's a flavour profile that probably fits better with what we're looking for in, in beers. The image is slightly more modern and, and contemporary. And, you know, what we're proud of is that sort of talks to what I said earlier is hopefully that's another generation of Australians that keep drinking the, the Crown brand. And that's what I think we're focused on in the future is that uh, we want this brand to be around in 20 and 30 years' time and we want it to be a brand and a beer and a range of beers that Australians can be proud of, right? That, that's, that's our mandate. I, I, I want us to live up to this title of being Australia's finest. So when people travel overseas and they say, tell us about, you know, Australian beer, and we know right now often what they say is, well, do, does everyone in Australia drink Fosters? Well, actually, no, they don't anymore. But, you know, we drink, you know, we drink Crown is the beer that we drink and we're really proud of it as being, you know, and a great Australian beer, I guess that's what our, our what we're focused on in the future going forward because, you know, the, the new team that's on this can't really do much about what's happened in the past. All we can do is sort of set a vision and, and then be true to our words in terms of the way we're, we're marking the brand going forward. I'm speaking with Tim Avadi, a general manager with Crown Beverages, as uh, you can probably <laughs> guess uh, from the conversation. That brings us to the, the Crown Golden Ale. Um, yep. Crown has tried a couple of brand extensions previously, um, including a, a mid-strength um, gold, uh, yeah. a, a Pilsner um, a couple of years ago. What was the thinking in having a brand extension that went into a golden ale? Um, yeah, so um, I think I think there's, there's a couple of things. So as I said before, we wanted to extend the brand for a new generation of Crown drinkers, so we needed to look at what the, the, the sort of generation under the Crown Lager drinkers, what beers were they drinking and, and what would be the right liquid to appeal to those, to those people while staying true to the DNA sort of of the Crown brand. You know, because I, I think for us, if you've got a brand like Crown and you've got that trademark and you're introducing different sort of consumer offers out there in the marketplace, I don't think it's necessarily right that they're all completely fundamentally different. I think they need to have some connective tissue that goes across them and we get that from the, the type of malt that we use and the Prada Ringwood hops that we all we use across it. And then I guess we add things into that mix. So, you know, in Golden Ale we use a slightly of a higher percentage of, of crystal malt in there and, and also we, we've added galaxy hops which gives it a slightly richer, more caramelly um, sort of taste profile and, and, and note to the product. So you know, we looked at those younger drinkers. We knew that you know there was you know they, they had a lot of appetite for pale owls and and um, they were looking for slightly more flavour, but not at the extreme end, I guess, of the the flavour range. You know, a lot of the pale owls that are out in the market now are you know are pretty easy drinking pale owls, and you know, in blind taste testing, probably not a huge amount of difference between lagers and owls. Do you know what I mean? Like that are out there. So, 
So we sort of we thought that that would be slightly more flavour than what, um, or a slightly different flavour profile than what what Crown had. Um, and so you know that's essentially where we where we came to that, and we looked at it and said, okay, well, you know, if we are going to get that next generation of beer drinkers in, something like a, a um, golden ale um, might be the, the the ticket for us. And it appears, our, our, I guess, the results today are suggesting that we're onto something there, and, and it's, it hit, it's, it's hit a note with them. And in groups, you just hear you hear the people talk about the fact that it's it's yeah, it's kind of different from the original Crown. It's got a slightly it's slightly smoother, slightly richer flavour, flavour, but yeah. So uh, there's probably nothing more sophisticated than that. We just looked at what our young, the next generation of consumers were were buying, and you know, um, and then looked at how we could bring a product to the market that tapped into that while still being true to our heritage in terms of the the DNA of what makes up a, a crown beer, so to speak. Well, my first impressions when it came out was pretty much that that, it, that the flavour profile was very much in the uh, James Squire Golden Ale ballpark. Yeah, yeah. Um, James Squire uh, is a, a craft brand. Um, it, it, it's a brand with craft um, uh, stylings. Yeah. Um, and the, the Crown Golden Ale was the first time uh, that a beer that's often, you know, that is more commonly associated with the craft market had, was brought out under a mainstream premium brand and I, I thought that that was a, a very interesting um, and a very savvy move because the growth in, in the craft market is around those you know, lighter flavoured craft beers and to, to bring it with the uh, um, premium into a premium brand that's got a much bigger uh, population um, who, who drink um, premium beers and drink craft beers even now. Yeah. Um, was there some thinking about that? I mean, it, it, it's a beer that could easily have been brought out as a Matilda Bay beer, for example. Um, if you're going to create a light golden ale um, and capitalise on the craft, was it was there debate or discussion about whether it was a craft brand or a premium mainstream brand? I think you should join our marketing team because that is exactly the debate that we were having internally, right? Okay. So, you know, I think you know, we might want to go onto it next because it's a fascinating, you know, discussion. I got some questions for you around. What actually is? How do we define craft? Right? It's a question that we ask ourselves quite a lot. It's a, it's an interesting debate as the as the craft industry uh, evolves, right? So oh, my my answer to that is craft beer is dead. But uh, yeah, we, well, we can get to that. So you know, so you know, and, and we can talk about that in a second because I think it's a fascinating uh, question from a, a marketing perspective. I, I guess um, yeah, we did talk about those, exactly those things that that you talked about. But you know, our view on that is, I think you mentioned a. Uh, craft style beer right and I guess that's how I guess certainly personally if I speak on my behalf that's how I think about it so I go you know the great thing about the craft industry in inverted commas is that it's got people interested in beer again and in different styles of beer that's fantastic right for everyone involved so I guess we looked at that and said okay well what styles of beer have has resonated with people in that in that craft area, and clearly the the, the pale ale area has resonated with um, you know like a large group of uh, the population out there. And we said, well, what well, let's take that style of beer and actually get it out to more Australians underneath the the Crown brand, and that's exactly what we've done. I mean, there's no there's no mystery or no secret in that. I, I don't think you need to. Uh, I think I'm letting any trade secrets out to suggest no, that's I, I, I suggested it and was held down by a, 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 quite a number of bloggers who were saying that it was uh, that I was completely off track there. No, but mate, you're absolutely on track. I mean, uh, it, it is. That, that's exactly what we did. I mean, and I'm kind of very comfortable that that's exactly what we've done because 
you know, I, I see, as I said to you before, I, like that's getting more people talking about beer again and introducing different styles of beer. I mean, at a simplistic level, you've got Crown Lager, which was a defining sort of beer in Australia, right alongside, you know, VB, if you like. And now we've got mainstream Australia thinking about, you know, golden ales, you know, and that can only be good for beer. We think it's good for us, obviously. And, you know, so yeah, that's it. That's exactly, I mean, being completely transparent, that was exactly the thinking. And, you know, make no you know, qualms about it. Like, going forward in the future, will absolutely be, that thinking will, you know, continue from us. In, in developing the taste profile, were you looking for the style to, to, to match that, or were you just sort of looking for the, the branding to match the, 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 the craft? No, so, as I said, we were looking for um, the liquid to... Uh, be a liquid that at the the consumer that we were going after mm-hmm. found found appealing, obviously, and that's why we looked into uh, you know a pale ale style or golden ale style of beer. At the same time, we were looking for that liquid though to be connected to you know our heritage in terms of the the type of beer a consumer expects to get based on their expectation of what Crown Lager has said over generations of, um, before. And as I said. You know, so that was the balance that we were looking at, is how could we keep some of that crown DNA in the beer while evolving it um, into a style of beer that you know, a new generation of consumers were clearly finding you know, was uh, you know, a preference for them in terms of what they were, what they were choosing and buying. So you know, that, that's really the thinking that went in, and that's the brief that went into our brewing team, was to say, and how I'll, do we do that? When we speak to Jadeep, I might come back to revisit this, but is part of that DNA the use of, for example, Pride of Ringwood hops? Yep. Um, does that then limit you uh, with some of the uh, you know, newer, new world hop varieties that are a little bit more aromatic? I know you've, you've used Galaxy in there, but is the need to feel that you're using the Pride of Ringwood, which is a very, you know, it's just yeah. closely associated with all of the CUB brands. Yeah. Is that something that limits um, the, the, the flavour profile you can develop in, in a beer? So, I mean, I think there's two things there. I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, you've got to be true to your origins, right? So my view is that I, I don't, you can't be everything to everyone. And so I would rather be true to what we think our style of, brewing is and, and and obviously the Prada Ringwood tops do have a distinct profile that that comes through a number of our, our, our beers however I think what you know the great exciting thing for us is what our brewing team have showed us is by adding you know and supplementing that that Prada, Prada Ringwood hops with things like Galaxy and Golden Oak, we can still create you know you know interesting profiles and that appeal to different types of people so for us that's the perfect balance because we want people when they open up a, a Crown Golden Ale or open up a Crown Lager, you know, for, for me, for what we're trying to do, we've made a bit of a promise to people, if you like, around what they can expect from one of our beers. And that expectation is built over generations of people. And so, you know, I, I don't see it so much as a limitation. Yes, it's a limitation in terms of, you know, if we wanted to, you know, go and make extreme styles of, you know, craft beers. Yes, it would be, but that's not what our mandate is as a brand. We want to make, you know, we want to make beers that, like, large numbers of Australians love drinking for generations to come. And I think we don't feel like our history or the DNA of the brand in using Prada Ringwood type is, is a limitation. We just think it's part of who we are. And, you know, by adding other hop dimensions to it and, and by, you know, you, you know, 
playing with our brewing process and being clever around the way that we craft that, then I think we can still make there's enough space for us to still innovate in the you know the years to come. Was that one of the the problems with, for example, the uh, Crown Pilsner or the the, the Crown Gold that? You moved away from that DNA because I believe that they used some fairly new hops. I think it was what's now called Summer Sars or um, one of one of the, the the new hop varieties for that. Was that? Uh, well, I, I think well, I don't have the. I, I don't know exactly what. Well, then we can ask Judith when it came on. However, you know, I, I think it does still play back to something like you know Crown Gold that that we had at that time. Is you, you don't want to go and chase. You know, you just don't want to go and chase trends or chase growth if in doing so it essentially compromises the integrity of what your actual brand's about in the first place. And, um, you know, so this decision to launch Golden Hour wasn't a decision that was taken over time. I think the development process was all right, you know, 12 to 18 months to get us to launching it to market with, you know, a lot of money spent on research, a lot of money spent on design um, to get us there. And... You know, and there are a lot of questions raised because what we were asking ourselves is, you know, does this product deserve to be and carry the crown brand? Is it true to the crown brand? Is it going to be a fad or is it going to be what people will be drinking in 10 years' time? And and if you ask the right questions, I think from a line extension perspective, you know, people get very nervous about them. But if you stay true to who you are and spend the right amount of time developing that and don't try and go and be everyone to everyone and chase fads then I think you're going to be okay. And so I guess that's what we've tried to do um, on, on Golden Ale. And I can't talk to why the Pilsners and the Gold didn't work in the past because I simply wasn't uh, around. But the Gold, for example, I'm not sure that that's in keeping with, you know, what we're about as a brand. And to your point, maybe the DNA of what Crown was about wasn't carried through those products. But Jadeep can talk about that maybe a little bit later on. I'm sure, sure. although I guess uh, Jadeep wasn't here either, but... I mean, straight away, one, one of the things that we, uh, that we, we can sort of take away from the, um, the, the history um, story is that for all that CB talks about loving our brands and being fiercely proud about our history, there doesn't seem to have been a lot of history recorded um, for, for some of these things. And uh, uh, corporate memory um, is, is so very important um, in... Uh, maintaining the heritage of, of brands as, as we found and I guess over the last uh, you know two or three years there's been a, a, a lot of stuff um, changing and there's been a lot of management changes over the last probably two or three decades um, yeah. with, with, with CUB and with that being such an important element of uh, brand awareness and, and, and planning yeah. I'm surprised that something as recently as the crown uh, gold uh, the, 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 the mid-strength and, yeah. and, and the Pilsner um, that when you're coming to devise a, uh, a new product in Crown Golden Ale, yeah. that you don't have those decision, that records haven't been kept about those decisions uh, for you to, to refer to. Um, yeah, it, uh, yeah I, so, so sorry. I mean, I, I, there, there may well be records about those, those two products. I haven't seen them. Jadeep and the guys may have seen those, those records. Uh, I think for us, again, we, we you know, we're... We're so very clear on what we want to do going forward now and what the brand stands for going forward, and we realise that we've made some mistakes in the past. For us, it's that, you know, although I'm sure there, were, there are lessons from that, and I guess the you know, we, we did look at some of the marketing lessons around those, those mm-hmm. brands that we did incorporate them into Golden Ale. I think one of the things to catch, to talk to in your point there is, 
around the fact that what we now have put in place, which is which is interesting, is a couple of things. So, you know, all our large brands, one of the responsibilities now of the brand managers per se is to to, to document the history of their and log the history of what's being done in essentially in what we sort of call a brand bible. So, mm-hmm. you know, each year we update that brand bible and it keeps accurate records of essentially what we've done and the changes that we've made and we put that in place in the, the last couple of years to, to, to help, you know, in 10 years' time when you keep updating these things every year, you look back at them. The second is, you know, from a brewing perspective, you know, uh, under the SAB Miller regime, we, you know, we brought in, you know, what we call um, a brand technical footprint and that is essentially documentation of exactly how our beers are made up and the key elements of those beers the DNA that I talked to you about earlier, so that when you have a lot of staff turnover and you know we sort of joke in the marketing industry, the first thing the brand manager comes in and does, he comes in and says, I want to change the packaging and then I want to talk to the brewing team and you know and, and that's how these things happen in and not just in our mm. industry, marketing overall. And so by by documenting these things, really the only people that can make changes now are at a sort of a head brewer level and a marketing director level. And we had that documentation. So, you know, when I walk into this job now and say, well, I've got a vision for the Crown brand and I want to go over here, I can't do that without getting Jadeep to sign that get off or getting our marketing director to sign that off, which gives us a, a level of protest, process and protection to make sure that we're protecting these, these trademarks that we have over time. And I think that's something that SAB Miller have brought to the table for us because because of the stability they bring for us and the, the longer term focus they allow us to have, I think that really helps us being able to embed those sort of processes within our business. I mean, you can understand when you have the sort of you know turnover and change we've had from a leadership perspective and from you know from a from a staff perspective, it's difficult to implement that and have being prepared to invest the time to write down that information and document it when there's so much change. But you know those changes have been reasonably dramatic internally over the last, uh, you know, five years, I suppose, since I've been there um, in different capacities. And it, it's, you know, it's part of our evolution and maturity as, a, um, as an organisation. So, I guess, and I mean, th- this isn't uh, limited to Crown, but th- th- as, as a person whose uh, consumer insight and brand management is, is, is your bag, um, it, it's something that fascinates me that uh, a, lot of, a lot is made of brand heritage and business heritage and when you've got a company like CUB that has been through so many sets of hands and sort of so many iterations and so many fads in terms of management and uh, things and we, we see important elements of history um, just being either forgotten or just self-referenced based on the marketing. What does um, you know brand heritage mean? Really, and, and this is to any company, so it's not specifically to um, CUV, but what, what does brand heritage mean? Well, I think the most important thing that we've realised is it means a lot to consumers. I mean, authenticity, credibility, integrity, honesty are things that consumers demand of organisations now, and I think it's taken you know, a, a while for large corporates to wake up to that and change their ways, you know. So, you know, all I can do is sit in front of you now to say is we're acutely aware of that situation. and. You know that you know that lack of documentation, if you like, or you know, like, or respect for our history is something that you know is just simply unacceptable. And and uh, I think we're all acutely aware of that. And you know, as I said to you, it's not just talk, right? Like I mean, off off the uh, off the record before, we were looking through some of our history, and you know, 
part of our planning going forward as we're looking at some of the the advertising that we used to do in the past and and some of the concept was used and literally going well this thing's as relevant today as it was 50 years ago and actually we have legitimate rights to be talking about the fact of you know the crown brand being associated with great Australian food and great Australian produce for a very long time mm. as per some of the communication that's been over there. So, you know, I look at that as a brand manager and say, why aren't we why aren't we leveraging that? Because I put my consumer hat on and I see that and I go, I actually find that extremely compelling. And, you know, I'm not saying my views represent those of the Australian public, but I'm pretty confident that I could put that stuff in front of, you know, focus groups today of, you know, mainstream Australian consumers you know, maybe shot in a more modern way, and they'd, they'd be they'd be probably pretty turned on by it, and and they'd it'd resonate with them. So I remember seeing in the seventies colour photos of Crown Lager with a dozen oysters, and it was one of those things that you know, looking at sort of two premium products. Well, it's kind of funny you say that because you know you've met Scott, who works in my team, and I think it's a sign that I'm getting a little bit old, right? So I kind of sort of kept banging on these meetings. I'm saying. I remember when I saw the ads with uh, the, the crayfish from King Island, but the younger generation in the office are seeing me going, what is this guy talking about, right? But it's kind of nice when you open up the history books and you show it and sort of Scotty called me on the way in this morning and he said, you're not going to believe this. Have you seen these ads? They're fantastic. And I said, yes, that's what, you know, that's what we've got this stuff in there that's so rich. And you know, rather than a lot of the time what we do in marketing is go and try and reinvent the, the world again, you know, I personally have a view that some of the richest stories we have um, are in our past and going back and telling those. And, you know, and, and that's why, as I said to you, I mean, with all sincerity, it's, it's kind of been a painful process for us to go through. We've had to look in the mirror in terms of, you know, some of the things that, um, that some of the gaps in, the, if you like, our, our history book, so to speak. But it's also allowed us to uncover a whole lot of interesting things about this brand. And to be honest with you, it's not surprising, I reckon, when you look at those history books, why so many Australians have a fond place for this brand and its heart, despite the fact that over the last, you know, probably decade or so, probably some of the, the imagery we've had associated with the brand, you know, the, the racing pieces that you've talked about, the Foster's myth and whatnot, have crept in over time. And I think, you know, what I'm, what I'm delighted to do is be working on a brand that actually has such a great history because I know that I can, we can turn to that and that's going to help us move forward, um, yeah, as we go forward, so... Well, we might uh, pause there briefly and uh, have a, and introduce uh, Jadeep to the conversation, talk a little bit about the future for Crown Lager. That sounds great. Okay, prop. Well, that was Tim Avadia. Um, the next issue, the, the next episode, uh, as you hear at the end, uh, we bring in uh, Jadeep. Uh, the head brewer um, for CUB and uh, have a little bit of a chat about some of the brewing, some of the more technical aspects of, of the brewing. Um, Jadeep's a wonderful uh, fellow, really interesting guy. Um, and, you know, to, all, to, to his credit, they really have lifted the um, production quality of the beer since SAB Miller uh, took over. But, uh, yeah. And, and we should also point out that um, for last year's Australian International Beer Awards, ably and um, beautifully hosted by Paul Mercurio, uh, featured Land of Plenty, of which Jadeep was one third of the brewing team. Yes, yep. Hey, actually, uh, as, as part of the uh, large, medium, and small brewery uh, awards from the year before. Yeah, and it's, uh, from memory, he actually came out and was working for 
Saint Arnoux back in the day. Um, you know, so, yeah, so he, he worked it. for Saint Arnoux and had this, had, you know, with Brennan Varus um, from memory. There you go. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I've got that right. No doubt someone will uh, email me in and correct me if I've got my history wrong. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. So it, it, he's he's not a guy that you know for uh, inverted commas he's not a um, you know a born and bred corporate corporate brewer. Yeah, well, SAB. You know, he he has been around and yeah. uh, you know he's really doing some uh, good stuff and working very hard on lifting the production quality of the beer. And uh, you know, full full props. It may not be your beer. You know, you may not be a crown lager drinker, but there's certainly if you're passionate about beer, you want to see all beer, um, you know, improve. And they certainly have been doing a lot around there. So, uh, uh, yeah, mate, how's that for a bit of bridge yeah. building or bridge re- yeah, re- no, re- repairing? Good. Repair, yeah. That's good. So, uh, Prof, um, what have you got coming up this week? Are you still in semi-holiday mode with the kids at, at home? So uh, no real beer activity on the horizon? Oh, plenty of beer activity. We've got the um, Ballarat Beer Festival coming up uh, Australia Day weekend up in Ballarat. Uh, which is looking very exciting, um, and then closely followed by Geelong Beer Festival, the Great Australasian Beer Festival in um, Geelong in February, and then in March the Bendigo Beer Festival. So a bit of preparation going on at the moment. Excellent. And uh, by the time this comes out, we will have seen voting end for the local tap tap house Hottest One Hundred, proudly presented by Australian Brews News and the Crafty Pint. Um, but We'll be looking forward. Uh, this will be an interesting one. This, I, I, I have a lot more keen interest in seeing what happens uh, just outside the top. Let's Mate, I'm actually, yeah, I'm gonna, it'll be really interesting to see whether there isn't some, you know, whether all of this stuff that we've talked about in this podcast, um, we're not going to see some blowback against the, uh, you know, the, the perennial high high places, whether we're not going to see some uh, protest mm. voting or, uh, you know, people, you know, looking elsewhere. I, I can't think, I, I think that for this sort of um, poll, it always comes down to, um, when you get away from the obvious choices, and that's not pejorative, but the obvious choices such as Stone and Wood, Feral Hop Hog, um, and some and Little Creatures, um, when you get away from those, everyone's list is going to be a little bit different. And so that's going to keep, you know, even if they start looking elsewhere, the voting is going to be spread amongst so many different beers. And I think, you know, back when this poll started, you know, before we had the real abundance of breweries that we have now, um, that was one of the things that they used to say about Murray's, uh, Murray's Craft Brewery at Port Stephens in New South Wales. They had so many different beers and so many very, very good beers that you very rarely saw their beers, you know, reach the top because the voting was spread amongst so many um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, whether there is a shakeout this year. Yeah, and look, and even just the, the changes that we've seen this year in uh, White Rabbit, Little Creatures, and Matilda Bay, whether or not that affects uh, the the conscience vote, if you like, for one of a better term, whether there's any sort of um, railing against uh, what what some consider to be, you know, uh, their beer moving away from from them. Be interesting to see. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, all will be revealed on the 26th of January. Jump on Australian Brews News or jump on the local Tap House website or Crafty Pint, um, for that matter, um, and you'll see a list of all of the venues that will be uh, counting it down with beer on tap. And, uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting uh, for you to try the beers as they're counted down. So, anyway, Prof, it's always good to chat to you. Happy 2015. Look forward to... Uh, let's see if we can't you know, make our New Year's resolution come good this year and... Uh, 
I'm in the bucket of all brand as we speak. Good man. So uh, we'll get off air and I'll lock in a time for the next uh, podcast and uh, I'll hold you to it. So, Prof, good to chat. Strike up the band. And you too. Thanks, listeners. Thanks for sticking with us. Now the time to roll the barrel